Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Mike, a glucose molecule walked into the bar and the barman said, hey, what can I get you, sweetie? Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Today we are talking not just about sweet, sweet glucose, but we're talking about how we can break glucose down to start producing some of that wonderful energy, ATP. Matt, have you done metabolism before? Yes. You did it when? I did Oh, did you? Mm. Uh, Biochemistry. Did you enjoy it? Uh, it was challenging. I had Professor... Uh, now it's Mary Campbell. Okay. She was very good. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot, but it was a lot of rote memorization, which I sh- probably shouldn't be saying considering <laughs> students are listening. But there's a lot of steps to remember, and we had to memorize and be able to draw every every molecule. Yeah. It's fun, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 str- <laughs> I struggled to see the big picture in things. Um, it was difficult to see the trees in the forest, I guess. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, metabolism is huge. It's complex. Hopefully, we're going to make things easy for you today because we're going to go through glycolysis. Now, glycolysis is a 10-step sten- a pathway that takes glucose from the bloodstream into a cell and turns that glucose ultimately into something called pyruvate or lactate. And then we're off to another pathway, which if it's... Oxidative, it's called the Krebs Mrs. pathway. Mrs. Krebs. Mrs. Krebs pathway. Uh, and we'll, <laughs> we'll be doing another episode on Krebs. But today is just this 10-step glucose to pyruvate pathway. Now, I think before we begin, we need to talk about how we can actually get glucose. I think we should start with ingesting some form of carbohydrates. What do you reckon? So glucose is a carbohydrate? Glucose is what we call a monosaccharide, which is the most simplest carbohydrate. Okay. There's three... Main monosaccharides. Right. Glucose, yep. fructose, and galactose. Okay. Now, the thing is that glucose is the major monosaccharide that we want because that's what we turn into energy, ATP. Glu- uh, galactose and fructose actually turn into glucose. Okay. All right. So, what we're going to do is we're going to begin with ingesting some delicious carbohydrates. What do you reckon? Some toast, maybe? That's not that delicious. Really? I love toast. Okay, a burger... There's carbs in the bun. <laughs> unless, you, <laughs> unless you put jam on the toast. Okay, let's say we have nice, sweet <laughs> jam, jam and honey toast. And we've ingested that, and in our mouth, 
Our salivary glands release amylase, which is an enzyme that chops up carbohydrates into its simple sugars, which includes glucose. We swallow that down into the esophagus, then into the stomach. Stomach doesn't do too much to these carbs, but transmits it down into the small intestines, where we absorb the glucose in from our intestines into the bloodstream. Now that means we're going from a hollow tube, the hollow lumen of the small intestines, through some cells called enterocytes into the bloodstream. Okay. So there's two membranes we need to move through here. So just to get back to the food quickly, just mm. so everyone can... Are we just going to focus on glucose? Yeah. Or are we still going to forget the other two? Let's forget the other two because they oh, turn okay. into glucose. Okay. All right. So the, the toast in this case, um, which is wheat, essentially, right? Sure. Is just repeating units of glucose. Yep. And in that process that you just spoke about from the amylase in your mouth and your saliva... Once it gets into your small intestines with the effects that come in from your pancreas, you are essentially just chopping the repeating units of the glucose, which is kind of a polysaccharide, into its repeating glucose units. Yep. And now you've just got heaps of glucose molecules in your intestine. Yes. And so you're essentially asking, how do you go from glucose in your intestine tube and put it into your blood? That's right. So it has to move through the cells that line the intestines. So it can't just go through? Uh, well, it needs a little bit of help. Why? Because glucose is not a molecule that can freely pass through that lipid membrane. Too big? Uh, it's too big. Okay. Yeah. So it just it can't fit through? It doesn't fit through. And okay. it doesn't move transcellularly, so between the cells. Okay. It needs to move through. So think about it. There's going to be a membrane on the side of the hollow tube of the intestines. That's called the apical or luminal side. And have they got um, villi? Yeah, they're they're called brush border cells. And so they've got villi and microvilli that increase the absorptive capacity. Okay, so they've got kind of little hair projections. Yeah. I like to think fingertip-like because I use cilia. In the hair. Yeah, so fingertip-like. They've got little fingers projecting into your intestinal lumen and the glucose molecules um, have to go across the membrane of these fingers. Yeah. And these these cells in your intestines are shaped like columns? Yeah, they're simple columnar. So they're only one layer, which means it wants things to get through, but they're column-shaped, which means they've got a lot of intracellular space. So they actually have a lot of intracellular uh, organelles. Okay. So how do we go from the lumen through the fingers? Okay. So there are some transport molecules that sit in the walls of the the enterocytes of these gut cells, okay? Okay. So what these are called are SGLT. Okay. So this stands for sodium glucose-linked transporter. One. One. If we're talking about the intestines, it's SGLT1. And so this sodium glucose-linked transporter means that, well, it's in the name. It moves sodium through and at the same time it moves glucose through. Does one drive it, or they just both drive the movement? They both... Well, uh, sodium will predominantly be driving this movement, but regardless, it is going downstream for both molecules. Okay. So that it's both a facilitative diffusion yeah. uh, movement. Okay. But the the sodium's essentially spinning the door. That's right. The to yeah. jump in with the free wire. That's right. A good, yeah, that's a good way of saying it. So sodium's moving through, allowing glucose to piggyback on this movement. Now okay. we've got glucose sitting inside the cells of the enterocytes that line the gut. So I'm going to ask you a question. At this point, mm. does the glucose, as it's going through, power the enterocytes now? So would that be providing the glucose? Yeah, absolutely. So they're technically the first cells that get the glucose. That's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. So the intestinal cells will be utilizing this glucose in the process of glycolysis, which we'll talk about shortly. But because there's so much glucose that's just been absorbed, it floods through and it needs to now go from inside the enterocyte into the bloodstream so it can be distributed throughout. So now it's going to jump at the back end of that cell. Yeah, that's called the basal membrane. Into the blood. Yes. And so what's the transporter there? It's another transporter. It's not an SGLT. It is what we call a glut or glute transporter. I think it's glute, yeah. Okay, it's a glut transporter. (laughs) 
And there's actually like... What, what, oh, so it's an acronym that st- stands for... Glucose transporter. Yeah. <laughs> so you so I always call it glute. Glute. Okay, we'll say glute, even though there's no E on the end. <laughs> That's right, there's no E. But I think glute sounds better than glut. How many do you reckon there are? Gluts? Mm. Um, in the body? Yeah. Or just categories? Oh, yeah, like <laughs> glut one, glut two, glut three. How many does it go up to? Uh, five? About 13. Wow. Yeah, but it misses a couple, but we only need to talk about four. Okay. Glut one, glut two, glut three, glut four. Now, here in the intestines, the glut that we use to take glucose from inside the gut cells to the blood yep. is going to be glut two. Okay. So, um, what we've done, we've digested the, sh- the sugar, so the um, complex carbohydrate, we've broken it down into simple repeating units. Yep. The glucose has gone across the apical membrane of the fur, of the enterocytes by SGLT1. Yep. And then at the back end of that same cell, it's now used a GLUT2 transporter and now it's jumped into your blood. Yes. So now that glucose is free to travel throughout the blood, where does it go to from here? Well, essentially all the blood that is drained from your intestine because it could be dangerous um, because it's come from the outside world. It needs to get put through your liver as a, a checker. Okay. So via the portal vein, it's going to the liver. Portal vein. Now, does, I, I know we have an important hormone here that helps to regulate glucose, which is insulin. Yes. Does the pancreas get any access to this glucose at this point? As far as I'm aware, not yet. So it has to get it after the liver's dealt with it. That's right. Oh, okay. Yep. After the liver's dealt with it, but the liver's not going to deal with all of it straight away. Okay. So now we've got a huge flood of sugary blood that's now rushing through your liver. Yes. Now, we need to take that sugar from the blood and throw it into the liver, which means it needs to move through more cells. So the thing is this. At the blood, there's going to be like capillaries where this glucose can leak out of. So it's in between cells. And so it needs to get from this area into the cell. Mm -hmm. Now, we could talk about and I think we should, how it gets from outside the cell to inside the cell of the liver, but also how it gets from outside the cell to inside the cells of all the tissues of the body. Okay. So the take-home... And then we can talk about what happens in the liver. So an important point that we need to know here is that we've got a heap of sugar in your blood now, and the main reason for this is so every single cell in your body can make ATP. Yes. Which is essentially a combination of oxygen and glucose to make this highly powerful currency that every cell needs to survive. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, look, you can make ATP from glucose without oxygen, um, but if you want to make large amounts of ATP from glucose, you need large amounts of oxygen. Okay, and so what we're trying to do here is bring the, the blood sugar levels back to a, a good... Because at this point, if you've just had heaps of toast and jam, your blood sugar levels are going to spike. Yep. Let's say, you know, your, your normal blood sugar is, let's, let's say, four to six yep. millimoles a litre. Millimoles per litre, yeah. Let's just say you've had a huge amount of um, jam on your toast, let's say, immediately after, you know, 20 minutes after, it's now 12. Yep. You don't want to keep it at 12 for a long period of time. So you, you do need, not. So you need to bring it down. So one way of it is to open every single door of your cell to allow it into the cells. Yes. But also, which we probably won't talk too much about today, is certain uh, organs can store the glucose for another day. Yeah. Okay. But at this point in time, we're just in the liver. So all the sugar's now in the liver. Uh, No, no, it's not. So, well, yes, it is. But I think we should also talk about the, how it gets from the blood into the liver. And Mm. we should also talk about how it gets from the blood into all the other cells as well. Okay. Because each cell of the body has a different type of glut transporter Mm -hmm. that allows it to get in. Okay, so what, because it's the, the most immediate, we're, we're going into the liver, so what does the liver do with it? Um, okay, so firstly, how it gets into the liver mm-hmm. is that it uses a glut transporter, which is also GLUT2. Okay. So GLUT2 is the same one that the intestines use, and it's the same one that the liver uses. So am I right by assuming, because we haven't got insulin yet from the pancreas, that this GLUT2 is insulin independent? Correct. Does not require insulin to jump into the liver. So the GLUT2 is like a door that's just now opened 
for the hepatocytes. Is that right? Yep. And now all this glucose can go entering the hepatocytes. In actual fact, every tissue of the body, except the muscles and the adipose tissue, don't need insulin to get glucose from the blood into them. Okay, say that again. So every cell or only only the GLUT2 and... GLUT1, GLUT2 and GLUT3. Yeah. Now, this is how I remember it. I use a mnemonic. Now, hopefully I can remember this mnemonic because I didn't write it down. And the mnemonic is, big fat boys kill small little pansies, producing nervous kids and mad fathers. So, let's you, go through this. Did you come up with yourself? I did come up with this myself. So, big fat boys. That's the first one. BFB. So, BFB is blood, fetus, and blood-brain barrier. And this is for GLUT1 or GLUT1. So, GLUT1 transporters are found at red blood cells in the fetus, the developing fetus, and the blood-brain barrier. Easy? Yeah. Any questions there? No. Okay. So, the next part, which is kill small little pansies, KI is kidney, SM or small is small intestines, LI, which is liver, and PA is pancreas. So the small intestines, kidney, liver, and pancreas has GLUT or GLUT2 receptors. Okay. And then the next one is producing nervous kids. So this is placenta, neurons, and kidney. And this is GLUT3. That's where we find those. Two kidneys. Yes. So depending on where in the kidney tubules. So we all know that the kidney has these really long tubules. We've got the proximal convoluted tubule. I think that's GLUT2. And then we've got the distal convoluted tubule, which I think is GLUT3. And then the last one is mad fathers, which is muscles and fat, which is adipose. And this is GLUT4, and this is actually what's insulin dependent. Okay. So those two, so GLUT4 is the only GLUT transporter that needs insulin. That's right. So every other cell in the body essentially doesn't need insulin. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah, so so what that means is red blood cells can take glucose without insulin. The developing fetus doesn't need insulin. Uh, Blood-brain barrier, so in order to get uh, glucose from your blood to your brain or even to your retina, doesn't need it. Small intestines, kidney, liver, pancreas, placenta, um, they don't need insulin to get in glucose. But your skeletal muscles do, and that comprises a good majority of like for a mass yeah. for your body, and so does adipose tissue again, good majority of mass for your body. Mm, very it's interesting. Now this is the thing, and you told me this, which I found amazing, is that while skeletal muscle at rest needs insulin, once you do exercise, yeah. strenuous exercise actually makes these GLUT4 receptors not require insulin. Because the reason why is GLUT4 transporters don't sit in the membrane like the other ones do. They sit inside the cell. And insulin calls it, basically calls upon it to go into the membrane to be able to take glucose in. But exercise also pulls more GLUT4 receptors. To the receptor, to the membrane. To the membrane, yeah. Which is important for particularly, say, type 2 diabetics because if they exercise, then they can bring down their blood sugar levels, possibly without the need of as many, maybe medications and insulin yeah yeah that's right okay so we haven't even done glycolysis yet <laughs> so let's just say let's just stick to the liver now we've got glucose move through glute 2 into the liver now we've got glucose inside the liver how many carbons make up the glucose molecule six that's right so glucose is a six carbon molecule and once it's in the liver it needs to turn into something and it turns into something called glucose six phosphate oh do we just want to give an overview before we go step by step so what do you want to do in the in, in the cell for, uh, for glycolysis we want to turn glucose into pyruvate that's okay. what we want to do because pyruvate jumps into the mitochondria and it, what it basically does is it turns to something called acetyl-CoA, yep. binds to something called oxaloacetate to turn into something called citrate, which is the first product of the Krebs cycle. And there's multiple products in the Krebs cycle, but the goal here is to produce around about between 34 to 36 ATP molecules. Okay. So the, the take-on point of what we're going to do with glycolysis, glycolysis just means the lysis, the splitting of glucose. And essentially... Glycolysis is the first part of trying to make a lot of ATP. Yeah, that's it. Ten steps. We're going to go through each step. Yep, is that perfect. Right? 
Yeah. So we start off with glucose, which is C six O six H twelve. C six H twelve O six. Okay. Yep. So six carbon, twelve hydrogen, and six oxygen molecules. Okay. So we've we get the glucose, we bring it in. It's now in the cytoplasm of the hepatocyte. Yeah. Yep. And you're saying we the first step is to make it into glucose 6-phosphate. That's right. And so it's pretty easily done. Now, if we're talking about the liver, which we are, the enzyme, there's an enzyme called glucokinase, which calls in upon ATP. And ATP stands for? Adenosine triphosphate. So it has how many phosphates? Three. Okay. So we want to steal one of those phosphates and give it to glucose. So it turns into ADP and we stick it on the sixth carbon. Okay. That's why we have glucose 6-phosphate now. Makes sense. And like I said, glucokinase is the enzyme that does this in the liver, but in other tissues of the body like muscle, for example, hexokinase does this. Okay. All right, easy. So now we've got glucose 6-phosphate, a 6-carbon molecule that's got phosphate on the 6th carbon position. Mm-hmm. Now what we want to do is rearrange the carbon atoms. Okay. All right, now we do this with an enzyme called phosphohexose isomerase, and all it does is rearrange where the carbons sit. It keeps the phosphate on the 6th carbon, but all the others are mixed around, and we produce something called fructose 6-phosphate. Now, I said that fructose previously is another monosaccharide. Yeah. Right? In actual fact, if you look at, if you Google glucose and fructose and have a look at them, they're nearly identical. They're both C6H12O6, it's just the carbons are rearranged. It's a different ring, isn't it? Wasn't, like, isn't it more of a, I don't know how to describe the fructose. Yes. So, so if you look at the ring, you'll see that oxygen probably sits at the peak of this ring for fructose, but it doesn't with glucose. Okay. Uh, so now. So does that mean if you're bringing fructose in? Mm-hmm. So if you've eaten the honey side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the honey. I think that's fructose. Yeah. Or fructose or, or fruit or sugar. Fruit. Yeah. That's where it will come into glycolysis. No, it will turn into glucose first. Ah. As far as I'm aware. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I thought this is the entering point for Well, you know fructose. what? I, I think that... Because I thought it went, the liver did fructose into fructose 6-phosphate. Oh, so, it, yeah. So, it can't, yes. So, fructose can turn into glucose, but fructose can turn into glu- a fructose 6-phosphate. And with that, and so that's where the fructoses are coming in. That's what I was meaning. So, if you just had a lot of fruit sugar instead of glucose, this is the step. I'm pretty sure this is correct, but you can check check this. And send us an email and tell us if we're wrong or right. <laughs> um, so all the fruit sugar that you've ingested will come in at this step. Mm. But only the liver can do it. Yes, yes. There you go. So now we've got fructose 6-phosphate. Uh, we want to give it another phosphate. So again, we need more ATP. We steal a phosphate from that ATP and it turns into ADP. And this time, where do we put the phosphate, do you reckon? Um... So another one, one, one six. So it's number one. So we put on the first carbon this time. So now what we've got is the fructose six phosphate had the phosphate on the sixth carbon. Now we've got another phosphate on the first carbon. So it's going to be called fructose one six bis phosphate. And the enzyme that does this is called phosphofructokinase, a very important enzyme. Okay. So now we've got this. Phosph- uh, fructose one six bis phosphate with two phosphate molecules. What we want to do is chop it in half. We chop it in half with an enzyme called aldolase. Now, when we chop it in half, it gives us two three-carbon molecules. Makes sense. One of them has the phosphate on the first carbon. One of them has the phosphate on the third carbon. Now, the one that has the phosphate on the first carbon is called dihydroxyacetone phosphate. And what it does is it turns into the other three-carbon molecule called glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. So all of the dihydroxyacetone phosphate turns into glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate which effectively means we now have two three-carbon molecules and they're both glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate with a phosphate on the third carbon. Yeah. I think it's also important to say here, because we're halfway through the glycolysis, right? And we call this first half the preparation phase, which is we've basically used two ATP molecules for these five steps. Yeah. So we're actually counterproductive at this point. Yes, this is catabolic, right? So um, we've actually spent money to, to eventually make money. Oh, I like that. So this is a preparation and then we get the output. Very good. That's awesome. So now that we've got this glyceraldehyde 3 phosphate, 
We've got two of them, actually, a three-carbon molecule with phosphate on the third carbon. An enzyme comes along called glyceraldehyde phosphate dehydrogenase. And what it does is it gives this three-carbon molecule another phosphate. This time it's an inorganic phosphate, which is a little bit, it's similar to the normal phosphate. Normal phosphate is PO43 negative, but this one is PO3, okay? And we put this inorganic phosphate on the first carbon. So what we have now is a three-carbon molecule. It's got a phosphate on the first carbon and a phosphate on the third carbon. And we've actually got two of these. Now, another important point is this. What else happens in this step of going from glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate to 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate is that... You, NA get, you get natted. What does that mean? Natted? Natted. What's nad? I don't know what it stands for. Okay, so nicotinamide comes along, dinucleotide comes along, NAD+. Now, this is the thing you're going to sort of wrap your head around a little bit. NAD+, is a molecule that has a positive charge to it. And what that means is it's actually missing an electron. So it wanders around the body trying to find an electron it can pick up. Here it comes across glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. And what it does is it picks up a hydride ion. This is a hydrogen that has an additional electron on it. Usually hydrogen is a proton and electron, and they balance each other out, and so it has no charge. Yep. And usually you've heard of a hydrogen ion, yeah. which is a hydrogen with its proton, but null electron, so it's positively charged. Positive, yeah. Here we've got a hydrogen with its proton and an electron and an additional electron, right. so it's called a hydride. So what NAD plus does is it comes along, steals a hydride from glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, and now it turns into NADH. So is this why this enzyme is called dehydrogenase? Correct. Because it takes hydrogen away. And so what's the purpose of this NAD plus moving into NADH? Is it just an electron carrier? We will use this NADH later on when we do the electron transport chain. Not in this episode, but NADH is very important for the electron transport chain because, like you said, what's it carrying? Electrons. Damn right. So is this... Basically, even though this is happening in the cytoplasm, mm-hmm. this can now, as NADH, then move into the mitochondria. The that mit- is that is correct. Okay, keep going. <laughs> okay, so we've got two three-carbon molecules of 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate with a phosphate on the first carbon and on the third carbon. What we now want to do... There's wonderful news coming here. Yeah, wonderful <laughs> news. We are now reaping the benefits of the investment that we made. We're now getting... Uh, some interest. Now we're breaking even. Well, yes, true, because what's happening is ADP. So that ADP that you produced earlier on comes along and steals one of those phosphates. It actually steals that first phosphate and turns ADP into ATP. But because we've got two three-carbon molecules here, we produce two ATP. And so the ADP that you're using here and joining a... Um, a phosphate too. Do you think they're the same ADPs that you <laughs> lost earlier? Uh, nostalgically, yes. I'll say yes, but no. It's unlikely. There are there's billions of phosphates. There's a possibility phosphate. though. Yeah, there's a possibility, sure. So now we've stolen the phosphate. So the... is this just doubled up because we've got two molecules? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So early on, we only had a one six-carbon molecule. So we took one ATP, got rid of it, turned it to ADP, and then later on we took another ATP, got rid of it, turned to ADP. Here, because we've got two three-carbon molecules, which are two, one, three bisphosphoglycerate, we've now turned two ADP into two ATP. Great news. So broken even, like you said. Now we've got a three-carbon molecule with a phosphate on the third carbon, and it's called three phosphoglycerate. Man, you think people are still listening? <laughs> What if I made a weird sound right now? Would people the, the, say, the chemists are still with us. Yeah, they know what's going on. So we've got two three-carbon molecules with a phosphate on the third carbon called 3-phosphoglycerate. It then swaps the position of the phosphate, changes it from being on the third carbon to the second carbon, and so this is now called 2-phosphoglycerate. The enzyme that does this is phosphoglycerate mutase because it mutated the position. Oh, wonderful. Now, why, it, why is it called isomerase? Because it didn't change the carbon positions. Okay. Okay. You just move the um, phosphate along. That's right. So it's a mutator. Exactly. And do we lose any water here? Not yet. So now okay. we will. Now that we've got two phosphoglycerate, uh, an enzyme comes along called enolase, which pulls off water. And what's water made? <laughs> what's water made from? H two O. Okay. So it's two hydrogen and one oxygen 
pulls it away. And so now, when you pull away the two hydrogen and the oxygen, the phosphate still stays on the second carbon position, but there's now an oxygen molecule in between it. So the phosphate isn't bound directly to the second carbon. It's bound to an oxygen that's bound to the second carbon. And this is called phosphoenol pyruvate. And we've got two of them. Okay. So. Can I just make a point here? I don't please think, do. I don't think this is necessarily the case, but when we hear of an animal, let's say like a camel, yeah. that can go for periods without drinking, um, is that because it can make its energy and then produce water? Make its energy and then... Because it hasn't like... I mean, okay. So the thought was... This is not in glycolysis, but I just brought it up as a, a concept principle. All right. So the old wise tale, I'm not sure if it's a wise tale, um, but thought that, you know, the humps in a camel is just full of water. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they can go for weeks. I used to remember that when I used to watch the old Popeye cartoons. So they can go for weeks, I don't know, maybe a month. Yeah. Without water at all. Yeah. But really what's happening is they're metabolizing their um, fat yes. in the humps. Um, and the lovely camel humps. They're, they're, in doing so, they're producing water molecules. Yes. So is this kind of the same concept in a way? As in it, 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 it's Produ releasing the water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably. I mean, obviously this is not enough to keep you hydrated. And look, camel metabolism isn't my specialty, unfortunately. But camel milk is. Keep <laughs> <laughs> going, keep right, going. So, now we've got phosphoenol pyruvate, which, and we've got two of them. So again, it's a three carbon molecule. We've got two of them. The phosphate's bound to the second carbon and ATP is coming along. Uh, sorry, ADP is coming along. Again. Pull, yes. So pulls, this is more great news. More great news because it pulls that last phosphate off and turns ADP into ATP. And now we've got something called pyruvate. Okay. It's a three carbon molecule with no phosphate on it. And there's two of them. So we started off with a six carbon molecule called glucose, and we ended with two three carbon molecules called pyruvate. And what have we gained out of all that from an ATP point of view? Two ATP molecules. As a net gain. As a net gain. But we've also gained some NADH. That's right. We've gained two NADH as well. Which will be powerful later on. Yes, when it comes to the electron transport chain. All now, right. another important point here is pyruvate has now been... Previously, it was thought to be the end product of glycolysis. Okay. But now we think that it may be something else. Any idea? Uh, acetyl-CoA. No. Lactate. Really? You've heard of lactic acid? Well, lact lactate, I always remember, was the result when you run out of oxygen. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So, the previous train of thought was you go from glucose to pyruvate as the end product, and now... And then you ferment. Yes, and now the question is, do you have oxygen? Yes, throw pyruvate into the mitochondria. So if you're, if you're a, a yeast cell, at this point, because you've got no, potentially no oxygen, you would ferment and pr produce ethanol. Yes. But if you're a bacteria, you would produce acetic acid. And now for us, it used to be thought if you have no oxygen present, so you're anaerobic, you would produce lactate or lactic acid. Yes, so like I was saying, once we hit pyruvate, yeah. it if we've got oxygen, we go the pyruvate the jumps into the mitochondria, goes in the Krebs cycle, and creates heaps of ATP through that mechanism with oxygen. Yeah. If there's no oxygen, pyruvate turns into lactate for us. But exactly like you said, if it's yeast, it turns this end product of glycolysis into ethanol, right? And f so that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that's how you make alcohol. So question here. Well, I guess we can come back to it. But question here. Red blood cells yes. don't have mitochondria. Yes. So is this the end point for them? Ah, good question. So red blood cells... Or do they produce lactate? So red blood cells use the GLUT1 transporter or GLUT1 transporter to bring glucose in, right. turns it to pyruvate or lactate okay. or both. Predominantly both because pyruvate and lactate are in an equilibrium. So when one goes up, it pushes it towards the other and vice versa. It goes back and forth. You're right. There's no mitochondria, no intracellular components to red blood cells, which means they only get their ATP through glycolysis. So they only produce two ATP molecules through this process. But we know we make ATP so that our intracellular components can survive. So why would a red blood cell need to undergo glycolysis? 
Well, there's a few reasons possibly why. Uh, one is to drive their pumps, the ATPA pumps. Um, we have those pumps every, in every cell to yep. regulate ion movements and so forth. So this would be a, a potassium, sodium potassium pump, and it would allow the movement of pumping potassium back in and sodium back out. Yep. And so if you ran out of your, if, so if, if your red blood cell ran out of ATP, it wouldn't be able to do that, and you would have um, ion exchange problems, and you'd probably cremate your cell. Yeah. It'd shrink up and die. Yep. What's the other reason? Uh, another reason, this is what I was told by a hematologist as a reason. Um, red blood cells need to have a strange shape, like a donut, kind of. That biconcave shape. Yeah. Uh, the reason for that is to make it really flexible, so it can fit down very, very tight blood vessels. Because some capillaries are only wide enough for a single red blood cell to move Yeah, down. yeah. And so it needs to be highly flexible and... My understanding from his explanation is the ATP can hold the kind of patency of that flexibility. Oh, okay. And as the red blood cell ages, it doesn't have a nucleus, so what can it make? Uh, there's, there's no DNA, so it can't make any genes or proteins or anything, really. Which means it can't repair itself. Yes. So, so what's its lifetime? So that means it becomes inflexible very quickly so it goes from a very supple (laughs) nice flexible yoga master yeah into a big round fat slob oh okay in 120 days wow and that means it can't fit down uh, small pipes in (laughs) it okay so it's it's killed off by the liver and the spleen wow because it's a fat inflexible slob okay and so it's killed after 120 days Wow, okay. But another reason of what the ATP may be used for, still fitting down small capillary pipes, mm. it goes under shear stress, and it's thought that the ATP can be released, um, and that can possibly cause vasodilation. So it actually makes the pipes a bit wider. Yeah, I read that Yeah, it, when the red blood cells undergo glycolysis and release ATP, that, like you said, under stress, the release of ATP stimulates nitric oxide to be released from the endothelial cells within the blood vessels, and that dilates the arterioles or blood vessels ahead of the red blood cells so they can fit through. Yeah. Pretty cool. So, yeah, it may be also producing nitric oxide in that, mm. in that pathway. Uh, another couple of points while we're on red blood cells, uh, there's a lot of potential... Uh, problems that could go wrong in the glycolysis pathway with red blood cells, particularly the pyruvate kinase. Mm-hmm. So, you so got... that turns, that's the last step, right? That's the phosphatidylpyruvate turning to pyruvate is because of pyruvate kinase. Yeah, so some individuals will have problems with that step, therefore they can't finish the final step and therefore they don't get their net ATP. Ah, yeah, that's right. ATP is produced in that step. So this is a genetically inherited um, mutation of that enzyme. So they can't produce enough ATP, so they've got no gain. Yeah. That means they can't regulate their pump, therefore the cells crenate, so they get um, hemolysis, so they get oh, wow. anemia, a type of anemia. Another form which is slightly outside the glycolysis, but it's very close, is glucose 6-dehydrogenase. I think I think that's that one. Mm-hmm. Glucose 6-dehydrogenase. Anyway, yeah. um, so it's much more common in Africa, yeah. and it's thought to be protective in some cases of the malaria. Oh. But the problem there is it can get oxidative stress. So if individuals were to eat things that produce more um, oxidants, is that the right term? Oxidative stress or, yeah. or, or um, uh, pro-oxidants? Yeah. Like fava beans, okay. which is like a broad bean, yeah. that produces a lot more oxidative stress, stress yeah. and then they go like reactive under. oxygen species, yeah, and they go under because they they can't regulate this pathway well. They their red blood cells all get killed. Wow, and they get anemia. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at the pyruvate and the lactate, like I said, it seems the evidence is coming out to suggest that, like like you were saying, it's not necessarily the fact that. When there's no oxygen, we create 
lactate, and when there is oxygen, we have pyruvate and go through the Krebs cycle. Seems to be that lactate is always produced. And we always think of lactic acid, right? You go to the gym, you lift weights, oh, I've got the burn, it's the lactic acid because I need more energy than oxygen that I have to produce. So that's what it's doing. There's actually zero evidence that lactic acid exists. Right. Is a thing. We've never been able to see it or capture it or anything like that. So what's happening when you are anaerobic then? So under anaerobic conditions, yes, we do produce lactate at a higher quantity than we do in non Anaerobic or not anaerobic or aerobic conditions. Yep. Um, but it seems to be the fact that because what we thought was that pyruvate turned to lactic acid and then lactic acid turned into lactate and hydrogen ions, which then made the environment acidic, we know that the environment does get acidic, but we're now thinking that maybe lactate is produced from pyruvate directly and that there's no lactic acid and hydrogen ions may be produced from some other mechanism, and that the lactate is actually there to mop up the hydrogen ions. So it's actually buffering it. It's actually there as a protective mechanism. So lactate production may be beneficial in weight training, for example. But it's true to say, still, regardless, that in anaerobic circumstances where either you're exercising vigorously to the point where you're uh, having enough oxygen... Yeah. You are producing a, a byproduct, which would be acid forming. Maybe. Um, and lactate seems to increase. Yes, correct. 100%. And so this is important still because when you're in states, like pathological states now, where you've got um, problems with enough oxygen supply, so this would be if you've gone into shock or you're having a heart attack, mm. you've got tissue running out of oxygen. So those cells are trying to stay alive mm. by producing ATP just through glycolysis, which we're doing. Gotcha. But as a result, there seems to be an increase in lactate mm. from a, from that outcome. So if you were to that take makes sense. a person's blood and they were in shock, lactate levels would be much higher. Okay. But you're basically what you're saying is there's no evidence to suggest it's a lactic acid. Yes, that's right. Lactic there's acid. Just, there's lactate, but that might be mopping up hydrogen ions yes. from some kind of anaerobic process, which we don't necessarily know. Yeah, oh. that's right. And it also seems to be that, for example, you look at all these different tissues and compare the ratio between pyruvate and lactate. You know, you'd think pyruvate would be in highest quantity if it's the primary end product of glycolysis. But in the liver, lactate outnumbers pyruvate 7 to 1. In a resting, Amazing. in a resting state. So in skeletal muscle, lactate outnumbers pyruvate ten to one. And in normal, act, normally, in resting skeletal muscle and in active skeletal muscle, lactate outnumbers pyruvate one hundred and fifty nine to one. So that's is sort of that indication about you know lack of oxygen. That's a lot, isn't it? It's huge, huge difference. Yeah. So you could potentially get false positives if you've got a really active skeletal metabolic state. Potentially, yeah. In an anaerobic phase, you could get all this lactate and it it may give you a false reading if you think the person's got... Well, that's why lactate's being re-evaluated as a marker or or how how strong that marker is as an indicator. Um, Now, I I think another thing to talk about quickly is the fact that for glycolysis, most of it is a reversible pathway, okay? So it can go backwards. But there's three areas in which it can't go back, and these are the rate-limiting steps for glycolysis. So the so, first, so these are like kind of hurdles. Yeah, that's right. You have to get over, but once you're over it, you can't go backwards. Perfect. Okay. So going the very first step, going from glucose to glucose six phosphate, that's irreversible. And so the enzyme here in the liver is glucokinase, or in other tissues, it's hexokinase. So that's really important. Now there's certain things in the body that can stimulate it and inhibit it, right? Because it's an important regulator. So for example. If you've got heaps of glucose, it's no surprise that it's going to stimulate this enzyme, hexokinase or glucokinase, to turn it into glucose 6-phosphate. It's a positive feedback on itself. So glucose is a stimulator of it. But if you have too much of the end product, glucose 6-phosphate, what the glucose is turning into, that actually negatively impacts that enzyme, hexokinase or glucokinase. So it's a negative feedback. Which suggests that it's backing up and it's... Telling it to slow down. Yeah. We can't keep up with this amount. Perfect. Um, insulin 
is a positive regulator of these enzymes. And because this state we're talking about is essentially an anabolic state, right? Yes. So insulin is an anabolic hormone. So it's a building hormone. Correct. So we want glycolysis to happen. So insulin stimulates hexokinase or glucokinase. So that would suggest that the opposite of insulin, which is glucagon, yes, would be an inhibitor. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, and inhibits, again, both those enzymes, hexokinase and glucokinase. Because when you're in a glucagon state, you need a lot of energy. Yes. A lot of glucose, should I say. So would that mean that other hormones that would want more glucose, like maybe cortisol or adrenaline, would also be an inhibitor for this one? Perfect. Yeah. So the stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol, they also inhibit hexokinase and glucokinase because it wants to increase the glucose being distributed around the body. So I think it's also important to say this step because you said that this is a non-reversible. Yes. But it's only reversible in the liver. So... Glucose 6-phosphate, we said negatively affects hexokinase and glucokinase, but it doesn't negatively affect glucokinase, which is in the liver. Liver. So So, what does that mean then? So it basically means that glucose 6-phosphate doesn't have negative feedback in the liver. So if that increases in its amount, uh, it's not going to stop the liver from turning glucose into glucose 6-phosphate, which means... Basically, the liver will continue to accumulate glucose 6-phosphate. It can't go ahead any further, but it also can't go, it's not going to go back. So it accumulates. And this is good because in the liver, the liver stores glucose as glycogen in the form of glucose 6-phosphate. Okay. So when you're in a fasting state, which we're not going to talk about, the liver can break those glycogen molecules, Mm. remake glucose 6-phosphate, Remake it into glucose. Yes. And then you release the glucose in the blood, and that brings up the blood. Yes. And this doesn't happen in muscles, for example. Muscles also have a large glycogen storage capacity, and it stores it as glucose 6-phosphate in glycogen, but it can't go backwards. It can't turn that glucose 6-phosphate into glucose. So that means whatever glycogen is stored in muscles is only available for the muscles. So it's selfish. It's very selfish. The muscles are you, the liver is me. (laughs) Any other organ that can make glucose for you in fasting times? Uh, the kidneys. Okay. Yeah, so it sort of seems that the kidneys, depending on where we're talking about, so the, the renal medulla, right, so that's going to be the inside of the kidney, right, Deep the deep tissue of the kidney, it can't turn the glucose 6-phosphate into glucose to release for the body. It doesn't have the enzyme, which is the um, uh, glucose 6-phosphatase, that's what does that reversible step. But the renal cortex does. So the cortex of the kidneys can turn glucose 6-phosphate to glucose and release it to the body. And it seems like in, in fasting states or the post-absorptive states, the kidneys can be responsible for between 20 to 40% of the free glucose that's been released. Wow. Which is pretty significant for yeah. two little uh, structures. Yes. Um, now, another important step is the, that's not reversible is going from fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. And this is through the enzyme phosphofructokinase. This is not reversible. And again, things that promote it include increased amounts of fructose 6-phosphate. If that goes up, it promotes the enzyme to turn it into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. That makes sense. Insulin also promotes it from the same reason that we said. But also, increased amounts of ADP or AMP stimulate it. And this is because glycolysis is an energy-producing process. Yes. Which means that if we have high levels of ADP, adenosine diphosphate, or AMP, adenosine monophosphate, it means we don't have much energy available. Oh, that makes sense. So it stimulates it to produce energy. So that's what that does. Glucagon inhibits phosphofructokinase. Eight high levels of ATP inhibit it, right? And citrate inhibits it. So that means if we're producing heaps of pyruvate, we produce heaps of citrate, because that's part of the Krebs cycle, and that's going to be negative feedback inhibiting it. Okay. Make sense? All right, and then the very last one, like you said, was that pyruvate kinase. That's the very last step in glycolysis, turning phosphatidyl pyruvate into pyruvate. Um, what inhibits it is ATP again, but also, strangely enough, alanine and phenylalanine inhibit it. They're strong inhibitors. Why? Not too sure. Potassium seems to be a stimulator of it. Why? I don't know. Do you know why? Um, 
I like this is dead air. No. Okay. Good. Cool. Well, that's <laughs> wonderful. It's a good way to finish, isn't it? So... There's a lot there. There's a lot and there. There's a lot of big terms, a lot of chemistry, and it's going to be very hard to follow this without looking at something. Yeah, you should have a textbook in front of you, or draw the pathway up first, and then listen to this podcast while you go through it, and write in some of the things that we stated. So, what did we go through? We, we went through glucose transport between and into cells. We spoke about the SGLT transport and the GLUT transport. We also spoke about how glucose in the liver turns into pyruvate, but also lactate. And we spoke about the different enzymes involved and how they can be uh, activated and inhibited. Hmm. So that's a, a relatively good one. And different GLUT transporters. Yeah, I said that. Oh, okay. I, I, I run out of glucose. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matty. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.